The Run Culture podcast has always been a passion project. It was created to share stories and experiences, to educate runners and to grow the sport. Ultimately, to show that running is cool. The podcast has provided us all opportunities to listen and learn from some interesting people in the running world. Welcome to the Run Culture podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I am an all-out running fan and an accredited running coach, a marathoner myself and an experienced physiotherapist that specialises in treating runners. So, before we get right into the show, if you have enjoyed any of the previous episodes of the Run Culture podcast and they have added value to your life and you want to support the podcast going into 2021, then we have a Patreon page. It's linked to in the show notes. A small monthly donation will go a heck of a way to keeping the show alive. By doing so, you too can also feel fulfilled that you are doing your bit to promote and grow the sport. Also, for those runners interested or in need, links to my online strength and conditioning course for runners or run therapy, my physiotherapy clinic, are also in the show notes. Alas, enough from me. Here's this week's interview. Welcome back to another episode of the Run Culture Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have Jamine Fraser. Um, So Jamine is a life coach, but then also has a background um, where he started the Insecurity Project. It's a podcast. He has two books, uh, Unhindered, uh, which I just listened over the last two weeks to um, in the audio format. The Seven Essential Practices for Overcoming Insecurity. And he has another book, Elegantly Simple Solutions to Complex People Problems. I wanted to get him on the show because he too is a runner, uh, but I also think he's um, well-versed and and very experienced in talking uh, about a topic that I think often gets uh, missed. um, And it's more about that mind-body connection and and even just sort of... uh, yeah, just the way we think, our beliefs, because our belief system often governs how we behave. So yeah, thanks so much for being on the show, Jimmy. Yeah, Jamin, uh, oh, Jamin. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Jamin. <laughs> Good um, to be here. Thanks, Dane. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, how did you start the in- Insecurity Project? Oh, look, uh, I my first adult working career was as a church pastor, so, um, uh, faith was very important to me growing up and uh, I got given an opportunity for different leadership within my church uh, and then through a series of circumstances that I paths that I went to walk down that I thought was going to be career choices that closed um, a whole bunch of things conspired to, to point in the, the direction of ministry instead so I, I went and did a degree in theology trained to become a, a church pastor and got given the leadership of my church when I was uh, just 23, which was a pretty intense experience, but uh, a very lovely experience. Um, the interesting thing and the reason why I, I start there is because as pastor, you're invited into people's world all the time to have conversations about change, about the things that matter. Um, it, it's a place of trust and, and respect. And so I was always fascinated by those conversations I got to have with people about what was going on in the world and how how infrequently those conversations ever led to lasting change. And so I observed that um, Christians in particular were were looking for something outside of themselves to fix their problems. So they were hoping that God would magically, miraculously 
heal their body, restore their finance, fix, fix their marriage, um, help their kids. And, and this idea of responsibility or awareness, it just seemed far too secular and foreign. Um, and so I always thought that very strange. And, and when a mentor of mine exposed me to the coaching skill set, um, probably 12 or 13 years ago now, I just was so astounded at, at the power of that technology and, and surprised it had been missing in my world for so long. And so I instantly knew I had to upskill, um, went and did a diploma in coaching, uh, some NLP training, and just was so um, in love with those tools and immediately saw the impact in my own life and then the quality of the conversation that I got to have with others. So, so transitioned from pastor to coach um, and thought I, I'm, I'm, I've always thought about being useful to people to have conversations that help them get more of what they want and, and create health and wholeness. Now I've got some better tools to do that. Um, and so as I kind of launched out into my own business and my own career and started thinking about writing, um, I can still remember the day where I was so clear about the thought I was going to write my first book. I was going to, you know, really go and do something meaningful in the world. And I told my wife about it. I told my best friend about it. And I went back to the hotel that I was staying at the time and while I was studying and wrote the first chapter for my first book. So excited, energized, passionate. And then literally the second on I shut that laptop, um, all that energy turned to fear and dread and holy shit, what have I done now? I've <laughs> put something out there. What if it's hopeless? What if I can't? What if I fail? What if people disagree? And so I uncovered this mountain of insecurity that had always been dormant. And because my world had been safe, like I was good at being a pastor, that was the world that I knew um, it worked for me, but stepping into something I didn't know, then it raised a whole bunch of limiting beliefs in me. And I didn't sleep a wink that night. I was so terrorized by this monster inside me. It's like, um, Jamin, what if you're no good? What if you can't? What if you fail? And so that was the beginning for me. I just thought if I don't work out how to think about insecurity as a problem, um, then I will never be the man that I desire. I will stop here. I will get scared. I will shrink back. Um, so that began my discovery for myself personally and, and worked out that it was a problem that could be, just, could be solved and, and began to deconstruct the process for that. Um, and then out of the overflow of that experience, my work as a coach in helping people change was always led to conversations beyond just behavior management uh, to kind of beliefs and what was underneath the surface driving that. And the more I looked around their beliefs, I always discovered limiting beliefs. And at the bottom of those limiting beliefs were always insecurities, fears, li limiting beliefs about themselves. So I just kind of, all roads led to that as a problem that I would devote my life to thinking about kind of have done ever since um, and then officially branded my business as the insecurity project a bit over three years ago um, and have kind of been ruined for any other conversation so it's all in around this subject of overcoming insecurity no that's um yeah like i i love love um uh i've just grown to love this topic and it's only been recently like the last month or two actually because um as a physio um of over 10 years um, yeah, I, I've tried to work with so many patients and so many runners, um, and to try to, they're, they're always trying to change something and they know what they want to change, um, in their running and they've got goals and, but then often like you see, see that runner and, um, uh, you know, the next week or two weeks, three weeks, and they, they just haven't had time or they haven't done, um, the, the exercise or intervention that you sort of 
you know, tried to um, agree and, and, and um, agree on doing. Um, and I feel like um, one of the, the gaps between, uh, often one of the gaps between um, uh, that action and, and um, uh, yeah, what the person actually does um, com comes down to that belief system and how much they buy into um, what you're saying. And, but then sometimes that belief system is so deeply entrenched um, uh, like, um, do you mind expanding about how, how, how beliefs, um, actually come to be and, uh, how important, um, uh, yeah, stories are in, in each person's life? Yeah, yeah sure yeah. thing. It's, it's actually quite simple, um, and profound when you unpack the mechanics of beliefs. So... So quite simply, uh, human beings are sense-making creatures. We go into the world and we have experiences, but we, we have those experiences through the filter of our senses and we have to make sense of them. Uh, so from the moment we have conscious awareness as a child, we have experiences and we have to decide what they mean. Meaning doesn't come embodied in those experiences. And so five people all having the same experience are actually not having the same experience. They're having their own unique version of that experience and they're attaching different meaning. Um, so interestingly, the, the two prevailing sense-making questions that override all other stories being told in experiences uh, are question one, why is this happening? And question two, what does it mean about me? So uh, when we have experiences, we, we've got to know why. Why is this happening? Something's good's happening. Why is this happening? Is that because I've done something good? Oh, good. If I've done something good and that's produced a good result, I'll keep doing good and it'll keep producing a good result. Or something bad's happening. Why is this bad thing happening? Oh, it must be because I've done something bad. Then I, I am bad. You know, so then this personalization happens, which is question two. And what does it mean about me? Why is this happening? And what does it mean about me? And so we, we then decide that we've understood the situation. Um, this kind of locks in this sense of certainty. And the moment we feel certain that we've attached the right meaning, then that governs our future expectations and future filter. So that is then what creates this belief inside of us, that um, this sense of certainty around meaning. Um, then the way our brain works is that we, we, have we, you know, we all have access to over 2 million bits of information in every one moment. We couldn't possibly be consciously aware and present to those. So our brain filters the vast majority of them out and, and we can only pay attention to about seven. Um, maybe nine if you're a female, maybe five if you're a male, but about seven in general. And so our brain is constantly deciding which seven to focus on out of the two million. And, and it decides that uh, things it'll focus on, uh, whatever we believe is true, important or relevant. Um, so then these, these beliefs uh, just become self-fulfilling prophecies. If, if you believe there's something wrong with you and you believe others don't like you, then that is the filter that you bring to the next experience of having a conversation with someone. And it just gets, it just gets confirmed. Whether they like you or not, you're running that filter. That's all you're looking for. Uh, and so you can imagine how powerful these beliefs and, and narratives are in our life. They shape our whole experience. And so I, I love thinking about the fact that we are storytellers and all we have in life is story and people who succeed in life, they just tell better stories uh, and they update their stories. Yeah, no, that's like that. That's so cool. Um, because I think that's um, 
Like that's uh, like I, I listened to another podcast that you did, just um, one of your um, insecurity project um, episodes, where they're just ten minutes and nice and succinct, straight to the point. And one of them was on uh, you can't have self awareness while you have self judgment. Um, and uh, uh, does that does that sort of um, feed into um, I suppose the um, something that people need to know as well, um, because because I think we can all have our biases as well, um, depending on our beliefs. Um, and uh, yeah, may, maybe sometimes our our um, our belief system needs work, and um, we need to um, yeah be prepared that you know sometimes like we need to reflect and see if we can we need to change it um, and. Uh, uh, to become more self-aware, would that? Am I reading that right? Yeah, yeah. Of course, we need to change them. Like, and when you understand the mechanics of how beliefs are formed, you see that it's the child who creates the narrative. Um, and and so often, adults have never ever reviewed the childish narratives. So, the child who experiences their parents get divorced armed with these two questions: Why is this happening, and what does it mean about me? Decides in their four-year-old wisdom that. It's happening because of them. They've obviously created this chaos and come between their parents. So what does it mean about them that they're dangerous and they hurt the people that they love? You know, which clearly uh, you could understand a four-year-old deciding, but is in no way accurate of what's actually happening. Um, so our whole life is being governed by these opinions of four-year-olds and, and adults that kind of don't know that's what's governing their life and just kind of live as an adult with these stories and beliefs underneath the surface governing all their decisions. So, yeah, I mean, of course it makes sense to update them. Even lovely stories that the child told still require updates because they're childish stories. So yeah, it's, yeah, we've got to go back. We've got to review this stuff. If you have any hope of living a meaningful life and an effective life as an adult, um, of course you've got to be good at updating stories. Um, you know, but you're right, you can't do judgment and awareness at the same time. So when people begin this process of becoming aware of their own narratives, often they have this judgment that that gets in the way. They're like, oh, man, I shouldn't have done that, or I've got it wrong, or I've failed, or I wish I didn't ever blame myself or decide this was true. And so they can't afford to clearly examine their life in case what they expose reveals something bad about them or that they've done something wrong. So therefore, it's just not safe, to be honest and the whole process shuts down and they can't see the stories. And if you can't see it, then you can't change it. The whole, the whole process falls apart. Yeah, it's been interesting um, self-discovery for myself, actually. Like I've always um, looked younger than I am. Um, I sort of was a late developer as I went through childhood. And a lot of people would just comment on, on that um, without meaning it. And they'd just say, oh, are you that old? Um, and, and then I think that led to me being a little bit anxious and scared talking in front of big crowds and, um, and aspects like that. And then I've sort of probably carried that through, uh, throughout my life. Um, and then I, like, I, I think that like, that was my read on it when I sort of tried to do that inner child work on myself. Um, and then there's probably, you know, a few other, a lot, a lot of other aspects that probably feed into it as well. It's, it's hard to know whether you're doing that work, you know, properly or well. Um, but I, I think that that um, uh, analysis um, of your own personality um, 
and then the way that you react to things, especially if you feel like some of those beliefs um, or those feelings you get in certain situations are limiting, um, it's worth doing. It's worth, um, yeah, uh, trying to go back to and, and look through your life and, and, and try to analyze why um, you, you, you sort of feel how you feel. Um, I think a lot of people aren't aware of that. Yeah, for sure, that they're not aware of it. And, and I think there's this deeper issue at play. Um, the, the human condition is that we're desperate to be good, but we're afraid that we're bad. And for fear of that badness or that weakness or that inadequacy ever coming out fully, then we either run or we hide. So I think adults get this angst around doing the review process in case they find something bad. Like they've always feared that maybe they're not good enough or they're not worthy or they, they don't belong. So why go back and review that in case it's true in case then and you find out for sure it's better to just keep running or hiding um you know most of my life most of my work is is like coaxing scared kittens out from under the lounge with a saucer of milk um, and just saying it's actually going to be okay to go back and have a look well, what we're doing is just reviewing childish opinions and guess what they're never right not once ever has the child got it right the good stories the bad stories the in-between stories they're never right they're childish narratives they're works of fiction um, you'll be okay to go and have a look at them and to bring an adult viewpoint to those and update them. And by updating them, then you set yourself free from a bunch of really weird um, insecurities and fears and anxieties that get in the way of you living the life you desire to as an adult. Would, would you say that um, some people have like a genetic predisposition to uh, acting or thinking a certain way um, um, like how how clo closed and, and open is, um, I suppose, changing the way that you think and, and uh, feel about situations? Yeah. Um, yeah, we all get given genetics, obviously. We all have predispositions for certain ways, uh, but, but I would say they are far less concrete than most people imagine, um, you know, simply because it's what we decide those things mean. So, uh, you know, uh, someone I work with had a genetic disposition to have a weak jawline. Um, so in their mind, because they had a weak jawline, that then meant they couldn't ever be a public speaker. They couldn't ever be a leader. They couldn't ever have confidence. If only they had a strong jawline, a strong jawline would mean that they could be a leader, could have confidence. It's like, well, really, does anyone actually care? So, yeah, perhaps there is some science around a strong jawline uh, exudes more certainty than a weak one. <laughs> but if you have a weak jawline and you would like to have confidence, yeah, that's actually that's actually possible. You can work with what you've been given. You can use that in your favour. You can turn that into your advantage. You can change what you make that mean about you. Uh, you can rewrite the narrative. Uh, absolutely. So I'm, I'm never... Like there's, there's, there's nothing a person could say to me which says, oh, sorry, you're right. Yeah, it is actually too hard for you. You are actually a victim of your circumstances. You, you have no control over that. Sorry, just go back to being a victim. Like not once has, have I ever heard any situation where a person is outside of choice. Um, you know, Victor Frankl, I, I love his example of that. This guy, Jewish psychiatrist uh, in concentration camps, lost his wife, his mother, his father, his brother. <clears throat> He's lost every earthly possession. He's in, in a, a death camp, being treated like an animal, lice, starving, freezing. And yet he realises in that moment that the Nazis can take every single thing away from him except one last thing. They can never take from him his ability to choose how he responds. That's his domain. 
<laughs> yep. And so here's a guy with the worst situation in the entire world. You couldn't have a worse situation. Um, looks completely hopeless, but he goes, no, no, of course there's hope because I have choice, real choice, meaningful choice. Even in the midst of great suffering and great hardship, I still get to choose the meaning, the story, the narrative, the beliefs. That's all mine. So if he can do it, uh, a weak jawline can do it, uh, a genetic disposition can do it, like a short person, a big person, a fat person, a skinny person, a young person, like whatever, whatever you've been given, yeah, great. Start there and then grow it. Yeah, I like, I like you explained that so well. Um, I, th- um, I think um, it's, um, yeah, it all boils down to the, um, the stories um, that you tell yourself and how good your stories are. Um, compared to just being a um, character in the script, um, like that—that's um, such a good way to to view life. And and the patients that I see that have that kind of optimism about their situation seem to have the better results. Um, there really, really seems to be a relationship between that. Um, uh, Jamin, um, I've heard you talk about. Um, uh, suffering and unnecessary suffering and mm. like what's what's the difference um between uh those two yeah. i i like this idea it sounds very yeah. bleak at first yeah. blush but it's it's very life-giving when you understand that life life is suffering so um whichever path you choose in life will be difficult the aim is not to find the easy path if you found that um you're in trouble because it's actually a lie and a trap. So, uh, if you want to have a if you want to have a lovely marriage, you want to you want to have a beautiful intimate relationship with your wife and be a good parent and and raise responsible kids. That's a difficult decision. Like that's a road of suffering that requires constant growth, requires conflict, it requires adjustment, self awareness, personal development, sacrifice. Oh, but if that's too hard, you you want to have a shit marriage and be a poor parent. Don't assume that road's any easier. There's plenty of suffering down that road. Like, you want to train for a marathon? No, there's suffering down there. Oh, too hard? You want to lay on the couch and do nothing? You'll suffer greatly too. You know, so whichever road you choose, there's suffering. So the aim of the game is to choose meaningful suffering. And and I I love thinking about that. So when I think about insecurity, I think it it creates a very high level of suffering. Um, It shows up uh, as suffering in people's health. Um, in, in people's finance, in their relationships, in their sense of purpose, and, and in their work, but I would say it is definitely in the cu- in the class of unnecessary suffering because insecurity is all built on a work of fiction developed by the child. It is our adult responsibility to set ourselves free from those narratives and update them, um, so that we can then live meaningful lives, lives that are toward meaningful suffering, doing doing things that are difficult but important. And free to actually show up at our best where it matters most. Yeah, yeah no, that's that's, that's the thought around that. Oh no, I, yeah, I reckon that's important to know. Um, yeah, uh, um, but yeah, I love that word, meaningful. Um, yeah, suffering because it just um, it just simplifies um, simplifies it a lot. So that yeah, like that's what you're searching for. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the concept of the safety officer. Um, yeah, you, you've sort of refer to that um in your book um yeah and on the podcast um what's the safety officer okay so just uh this one requires a quick observation of the difference between self-discipline and self-permission 
So, so I, I say very loudly that self-discipline is massively overrated. Um, it has its place, but it is a young person's strategy um, because it requires you to have energy to waste. It's very inefficient. It's, it's based on the presupposition that there's this fat, lazy, recalcitrant part of you that doesn't want to succeed and you have to dominate, beat, manage, override, or even kill that part. So it's a very brutal strategy. And, and if you ever treated someone else like that, you'd be sent to jail. So I'm not quite sure how we ever thought that this was a good idea to treat ourselves like that, to flog and fight and force. Um, so, so typically I, I get to talk to, you know, kind of midlife people. So, so 35 and they're exhausted from this self-discipline strategy. And, and as hard as they've tried to be the person they want to be or achieve the goals they want, they, they, they've not. Well, they've had moments of success, but the moment they get tired, they come back to not being where they want to be. And they kind of become aware that there's this internal resistance. There's stuff inside them that gets in the way. And they want to hate that part. And they've, been, they've been fighting that part. Um, but the good thing about exhausted people is, is that they're ready to be wrong about a few things. Um, you know, I love Mark Manson's idea that he says, you've got to know that all, all change is preceded by being wrong about something. And so uh, when you're exhausted, you're, you're ready to consider, well, perhaps I've not thought this through. So I love examining that resistance and saying, well, is that part of you in the way, is that really your enemy? Or could it actually be the safety officer? Could it be the part of you that is trying to keep you safe? And like, like the OHS or the WHS officer, whatever they call these, they comes on a work site, blows the whistle and says, hey, listen, everyone, tools down. This place is not safe. I cannot allow work to continue. That's frustrating. It's annoying. There's no productivity, no profit. But the safety officer's like, yeah, but this blade's about to come loose. This wire's about to short. This board's about to fall out. Like someone's going to die here if I don't pull this up. So I'm not your enemy. Your, your, your success must also be safe. So if you think about this internal resistance in that way, um, then it just is an opportunity to review what's dangerous in your world. It's an opportunity to find out what are the things that are actually unsustainable, that are, are toxic, that, are, that leave you very vulnerable, and to address those. Because if you address those safety concerns, then you get full permission from yourself to move forward. So I, I think the most exciting growth a human being can discover is the ability to work with themselves rather than against themselves. Against themselves, that's transitioning from self-discipline to self-permission. So, if you satisfy the conditions of the safety officer and, and address the things that are actually dangerous inside you, and the, the most dangerous things are insecurities. I, I promise you, because they leave you so vulnerable to the world. They they leave you so needy. And if you're relying on other people to validate you, approve you, accept you by what you can do and how you perform and what you can achieve, the moment you can't do those things, then those people aren't going to give you what you need and then you're empty. So for a human being, that's that's devastatingly vulnerable to position yourself like that. So safety officer says, hey, listen, we've got to address this stuff. Otherwise, I cannot let you move forward into more success or more exposure because you're going to get found out. And address the concerns, deal with the insecurity, and then you have permission. And if you've got permission, we're working together, not against each other, and you're away. And Jamin, um, you, you had um, some marathon build-ups for, was it Townsville Marathon, where you did it sort of more in that disciplined um, sort of approach versus um, that approach of permission? Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. So, so interestingly, 
uh, yeah, eight marathons. Uh, yep. The first four definitely on the fuel of self-discipline. Right, here's my yep. goal. I need to work hard and train very hard to achieve that goal. So I need to fight myself and force myself toward that goal. And it's all about sacrifice. It's all about willpower. And sure, it works. You can you can force and fight yourself to do that. Um, but after my fourth marathon, uh, as soon as I crossed the line, um, my, my piriformis muscle locked on um, grabbed my sciatic nerve and held it tight for about six months. And my initial response was to think, ah, oh, my body's broken. I, I need a physio. Um, I need dry needling. I need acupuncture. I need something to fix this physical ailment. Um, but, but the more I considered it, I, I thought, I'm not sure that this is uh, an injury. This feels like some kind of really clear communication that there is something unsustainable about the way I'm doing my training and my life. And that my unconscious has, is grabbing my attention in the most, um, the most immediate way. So I love running. I don't survive without running. So I was like, my unconscious was like, hey, Jamin, you're a crazy man. I'm never doing this again. And watch this. I will now take running off the table for you. So we've got to have a conversation about a bunch of things and and I'm going to escalate this by removing running. So as, as hard as I would try, I couldn't get rid of that pain and therefore I couldn't run, um, which was tough until I kind of got the point. And, um, and so for me, I don't know whether this sounds strange or not, but I love the idea of internal communication, listening, a conversation. And so when I finally sat down at the table and had a meeting with myself about this, I kind of realized I did not have permission to run another marathon. And so my first question was, well, why don't I have permission? And then I thought, no, that's, that's an aggressive question. That's kind of assuming that the part of me that's resisting doesn't like me and doesn't like me running and, and hates me and is trying to ruin my life. I thought that's missing the point. So I asked a better question. All right. Um, so assuming this is loving, uh, what conditions would need to be satisfied so that I did have full permission to run another marathon? Um, and, and instantly I kind of hear myself say, oh, well, look, here's the thing, Jamin. Um, you, you, uh, when you flick the switch to run a marathon, it gets your undivided attention and nothing else in your world has ever got that level of attention before or since. So you, you don't miss a single session. Um, you, your diet is really precise. <laughs> you, you get cranky, you get focused, everything else kind of fades into oblivion. Now you're also, you're married, you love your wife, you love your kids and they miss out when you train. You're running this cool business, doing some amazing things. Your business misses out when you train. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. I'm like, actually, no, I haven't considered the impact on my world <laughs> of running a marathon. Now, I'm no professional runner, so running is not my only thing. There are others, obviously, people on your podcast, and that is their only thing. So I'm just speaking from my own experience. And so when I listen, so I listened and I heard, I heard a couple of things. Um, in order to get permission to run, to train for another marathon, there were two adjustments I needed to make. Um, the first is that uh, marathon training had to take priority three in my world, not priority one. Um, a business and family were really, really important. And, and if I was to drop the ball just for the sake of a marathon, that wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy with that. And so if I could still be meaningfully engaged with my family, give them time and energy and presence and be devoted to my business and really take things forward and then had time to still train for a marathon, beautiful, no problems at all, happy days. So I was like, could I, could I put it three, not one? I'm like, yeah, I can abide with that. Um, and so, so I went off 
to train the next day, got halfway through the run, thinking, yeah, I've solved the problem. I've got permission. Um, and then this sciatic nerve grabs on again the piriformis muscle. I'm like, oh, you're <laughs> kidding me. So frustrating. I thought I'd solved this problem. And then I got over the fact that clearly I'd, I'd jumped the gun. I hadn't listened to the second thing. And so back to the table, all right, what else needs addressing before I could have permission to run another marathon? And I was like, here's the thing, Jamin. You love this Townsville Marathon and it taunts you because it's a lesser-known marathon. Um, there's a bit of a lure of glory. You know, yep. my, best, my best times were good enough to win that race. It, and, and every second year, the, the, the time would be, the winning time would be less than my PB. Um, sorry, greater than my PB. So yep. I, I could theoretically win the race. Yet the year that I turned up, um, some guys blown in from New Zealand to qualify for the Olympics, some Japanese <laughs> runners there to try and take the title. And, and the best I've ever finished is fourth. Yep. And so this lure of glory, I get so invested in the idea that I'm going to run, not just run, I'm going to win Townsville Marathon. Yep. And I'm an ambitious character and I use all my tools and techniques of visualising and I get all consumed with the podium. <laughs> and then I come away so, so disappointed, so destroyed for three months after that. And so my unconscious goes, hey, Jamie, guess what? Um, you cannot control who turns up on a marathon that you are not Kipchoge. So it doesn't <laughs> matter who else is there and you can't control that. So investing your happiness and your sense of success on a podium is a strange idea because you can't determine it. So like, so podium has to be off the table for you to go anywhere near training again, podium's off the table. Like, I'm like, well, what about thinking about a PB? Is that okay? Yeah, that'll be fine. Knock yourself out, train for a PB, but no podium. I'm like, could I genuinely take the, the podium off the table? So I went, yeah, I could I could abide by that. I, I could abide by that. No podium and priority three. <laughs> I'm like, I, I think I've got it. And so I went to sleep that night feeling at ease and feeling peace. I think, oh, yeah, I, I think I've got this. And um, just as I'm going to sleep, I, I hear myself go, um, all right, go, go run 30Ks in the morning and you know, that's not a good idea to go from no real training to 30 Ks the next day, but nevertheless, that's what I, well, that's what I sensed. And so I'm like, oh boy. So I got up before my alarm, which is always a good sign. Um, I love training in the frost in Goulburn in the winter. So it was a crisp, you know, minus eight, 5 a.m. in the morning, you got the world to yourself. And I'm just enjoying running pain-free, not, not a single bit of pain. Um, I get to the 20 K mark and uh, I'm, I'm done, I'm cooked, and I start heading for home. But every intersection, I find myself going left instead of right <laughs> and just keep extending the run until yeah. I find myself back at my house at 30.8 k's, finishing fast and strong, yeah. um, feeling alive and energised, and I hear myself say, great, now let's go run a fucking marathon. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and it was a lovely experience. Not every single training session, I promised myself I would not do a single session I didn't want to do. Um that I would make sure that I kept it priority three and no podium. Um, it, it was amazing. I gave, I had permission to run a, run a PB. So I lost eight kilos, eight kilos. I didn't think I had to lose simply because I had permission to be at my best. So it was just such a thoroughly lovely training experience. Um, and, and all four marathons I did with that kind of idea were beautiful rather than the fight for the other ones. Um, the race in itself, as often, you know, didn't didn't go according to plan many of those times. But nevertheless, the training experience and the preparation was was glorious. So I, I love thinking about permission. I think it is a beautiful upgrade, and especially in the back end of life, not just for running, but for every area of your life, it, it's everything.
Oh, Jamin, yeah, that, that's um, such a great example for listeners to hear um, because I think so many of us are like just so, so, um, yeah, disciplined and, 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 and driven. Um, but just, I, I like how, and that really does speak volumes to that mind body connection, I reckon, because just by having, um, running as priority three and, 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 um, viewing that, having that holistic view of life, um, where you're balancing work and family and, um, and, and running, um, and, and not, not sort of being, you know, so focused on running, but then also having that, a nice goal that you could control, um, where you, you could control running a PB rather, you can't control who's going to be there on the day. It probably meant that you, you start to make the right decisions about your training and, and, and you, you approach it the right way. So then your body's probably more likely to play ball, um, as well. Um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I, I just maintain that sense of listening to myself, that rapport with myself, checking in. People ask me when they hear that story, they're like, but how do you listen to your body? That's so weird. You know, it's not actually that weird. I mean, I don't even know how I listen to my wife, let alone my body. Like she's <laughs> weird. She's a, she's a woman. She's emotional. She's a bit dramatic, you know, like, I don't know how the mechanics of how I listen to it, but I know that I do. Yeah. Um, I know that I want to, I know that it's super important. I know that that's my intention is to be present and find a way to understand her. And there's a bunch of verbal and non-verbal things that are going on that go towards listening to her. And so I know that I do as evidenced by the fact we have great intimacy and, and rapport. So I think it's just the same with yourself. I, I don't know the mechanics of listening to your unconscious. It's a strange concept, but I know that I do. And I know that others can. I know that if you want to, if you realize that, it's all you're all one system everything's connected you know we're not just conscious we're not just physical um we, we're head and heart mind and body conscious and unconscious so it makes sense to think about yourself as a united being and learn to open lines of communication and find ways of speaking your own language and and i love the fact that it's so testable so the fact that I'd been having pain in my piriformis muscle, in my sciatic nerve for six months, every single day, no matter what I'd try. And the very moment I make a commitment to priority three and podium, that very moment, I have no pain. So that to me is a beautiful indication that I've actually accurately listened. And, and then I'm run pain free for, for the whole six day week training block. That to me is evidence that I've maintained rapport kept up that agreement and I'm listening well. So I think it's very testable. Yeah. And, and yeah, like every, everyone's so individual, like um, what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for the next. But at the same time, I see so many people that, you know, try the, try like the physio, the dry needling, the massage, um, as soon as they've got an ailment, but then it, they don't uh, change um, their approach to the, upcoming race um, and their views on it and you know maybe they're just in a rush and they're, they're training too hard they're trying too much all at once and it's all all down to um yeah their their um mindset um on the race and and uh maybe that's what they need to work on a little bit because it doesn't matter how much massage or dry needling you're going to get it's if you've still got that mindset of being in a rush and forcing it and and being way too self-disciplined um, and not just um, taking a step back and, and just saying, this is how it is. Um, let's be um, a bit more logical about it. And uh, I've only got this amount of weeks. Um, uh, I'm gonna have to do this type of 
training or I'm going to have to have this sort of mindset to my approach to the race. I think, um, yeah, it sounds, that sounds um, quite basic when I say it like that, but at the same time, see so many people not, not seeing, seeing that and, and thinking that the, the massage is magically going to um, get rid of the ailment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I see people do that all the time, put some band-aids on so they don't have to address what's going on. Yeah. I see people lots, lots of the time assuming that discipline is going to get them a better result than permission. They're like, hang on, if this is about giving myself permission, then surely I'll just be lazy. I won't do as much. I'll just think, oh, it's all too hard. It'll be too cold. I'll just give myself permission to rest and take it easy. It's such a misunderstanding. Like surely working with yourself is guaranteed to get you a better result than working against yourself. Like just that concept alone, surely that makes sense. So if you can work out who you are, how you work and listen to your body, have agreements, surely you're going to perform at a higher level than if you are fighting and forcing and not listening. Yeah, that's that's so true. Like I've, I've experienced that myself. I've seen a lot of runners like that where you think, oh, the harder you work, the more you do, uh, the stricter you are on yourself, the better you're going to go. And you just forget that interplay between um, straining your body and then resting and recovering and the need to do that to adapt better and quicker. Um, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, uh, I love that we've top, top, um, touched on that topic and, and a lot of the um, uh, little stories and, and um, advice and, and, and just the way that you think about um, topics. Um, yeah, you've given a great insight today, Jamin, and I'm, I'm so wrapped to... Um, that you can share your insight to so many of the people that listen to this podcast. Um, yeah, I, I really wanted to get um, you on uh, because I, I feel like um, it's a topic that um, a, a lot of people just sort of brush under the covers and, and don't don't um, don't delve into enough. So um, yeah, I, I'm so grateful for your time. And if, if um, someone was wanting to sort of um, reach out to you or find out a little bit more about you. Um, cause you've got a great, um, little test on your website, um, where you can sort of, um, delve a bit deeper into where insecurities may be in your life. Um, yeah. yeah. How, how can they reach out to you? Yeah. Well, just, if you Google the insecurity project, you'll find my podcast, you'll find my website. You, you can take the insecurity test to see where it's showing up in your life. Um, I'm still giving away my book unhindered the seven essential practices for overcoming insecurity for free plus postage at the moment. You can find that again off my website or, or go to unhinderedbook.com. Um, yeah, and I'm on the socials as, as Jamin Fraser. So uh, let's see, if you can work out how to spell my name, I'm fairly easy to find. Cool. And then, yeah, just to finish, um, uh, like, what, is there any parting advice? And, um, and then just one other thing, what do you love most about your job? Uh, advice is a dangerous word. I, I'm very reluctant to give advice. Um, I, I, I just, the thought that I, I'm constantly sharing with people is this is more than just about you. So insecurity is a universal issue. Um, every single adult will face the fear of not being good enough. You don't, you don't escape childhood without some kind of limiting belief. So there's nothing wrong. There's nothing broken. There's nothing strange about that. It's an opportunity to, to fully become an adult and review the data of your storytelling. So it's, it's very straightforward, very practical idea. Um, so anything that I could say, which would dial down the angst for that review and that update, that's constantly my message. It's, it's not, it's important work. If you don't find a way to do it, it actually doesn't, 
you don't get away scot-free. It, it, it leads to madness. It weakens you. It undermines you. It ruins your life, your business, your marriage, your health. So, um, and doing it actually means you can show up at your best where it matters most, which is not just good for you or your business or your marriage or your health. It's good for the world. So insecure people um, create chaos. Secure people bring healing. So what I love most about my job is, um, you know, probably just that this is what I feel like I was born to do. So um, it's it's meaningful suffering. It's a they're difficult conversations. It's a vulnerable subject, but I, I get up energized every day. I, I'm very excited about the idea of writing, thinking, speaking stuff that makes sense to people and gives them uh, more choice around a part of their life that perhaps they thought was just something you just manage or sweep under the carpet, as you said. Oh, and then, sorry, I know I said that was the last question, but it, it just triggered another uh, question. Um, what's the most proud um, moment that you've had with someone that you've tr um, helped work with in terms of did, what sort of blew your mind away in terms of the work that you do where it really, um, it really was quite fulfilling and um, it really confirmed, um, yeah, what you do? Is there something that springs to mind? Um, every day there's something like that. I, I yeah. genuinely pinch myself every day. I, I have people, um, you know, so I've been at this work for, for 12 years now, writing, speaking, putting out stuff on the radio and podcasts. And, and often early days you think, uh, uh, I don't know if anyone's ever hearing this or whether this has any value, but nevertheless, I'll, I'll keep putting it out. And so it's not a, very often there's a day that goes by that I don't hear from someone somewhere on, around the world who somehow was stumbled across something I've spoken or written and they found it useful and, and it's practical to them. And they go, this has been a missing piece in my thinking about my own story. Thank you. I've used it. Um, it's given me freedom for some stuff and it's great. So, so I think that they're the proud moments where you're like, oh, wow, this is um, being useful for people at whatever level uh, and all around the world. So um, I, I never lose the joy of that experience, that's for sure. Uh, and are you doing Townsville this year? I'm not doing Townsville <laughs> this year. Uh, I, I, at this moment, I, I've run my last marathon. Um, I transitioned away from being an athlete to being an entrepreneur as my primary um, mode, like where I, being an athlete always got my best energy. Um, being an entrepreneur now gets my best energy. I love to run still, but I think all my PBs are behind me and the thought of a marathon is uh, not very appealing at the moment. So um, who knows, that may change down the track, but definitely not doing Townsville this year. All right, thanks so much, Jamin. Um, yeah, and thanks so much for your time. My absolute pleasure, Dane. Thanks for the conversation. Yeah.